So all the scriptures will be on the screen. But I have a question to, to start off. Did you ever ask yourself what you wanted to be when you grow up? When you, when you grow up, what did you want to be? I asked myself that question. What do you want to be when you grow up? I think probably that most of us have asked that. Anybody? Yes? Just a hand? Okay, cool. You guys are there. Perfect. I'm a talk back kind of guy. No. So we ask ourselves the question, what do we want to be when we grow up? And there's something that's just natural and sort of next and healthy about asking that question because it's a natural progression to grow older. It's a natural progression to grow more mature. It's a natural progression to, quote unquote, grow up. Uh, for me personally, um, I don't know if any of you can guess what I wanted to be uh, when I was growing up. First, I wanted to be a basketball player, but there comes a point in every 5'11 kid's life when he just needs to learn to do something else. Uh, but I actually wanted to be a history teacher when I was growing up. I love stories. I love history. I've always been intrigued by history. I love teaching. Um, jury's out on whether or not people enjoy when I teach. But I love teaching, I love history, so I was fascinated by it. I wanted to be a history teacher. Then late in high school, uh, my senior year, second half of my senior year, my school put on a musical production, and I got dared to go audition for it. And I did, and I got in, and it was amazing. And all of a sudden, I discovered the stage, and it was so, it felt like home to me. And for the next seven years, I trained to be an actor, and I thought that I was going to be uh, on Broadway one day or in movies, um, and, and that's what I wanted to be, quote-unquote, when I grew up. So what informs our desire to grow up or, or to, to have to become something when we grow up? How does that picture become clear? I, I think it's a synthesis of, of a few things coming together in our lives. First of all, it's as we gain an understanding of how we've been designed you get sort of an idea of how you've been put together. You've been put together differently than other people, and you start to discover that about yourself. You gain a greater understanding of what your passions are, maybe a little bit of what you're good at, and is there a little bit of, a, of an intersection there? Do you enjoy doing things that you're good at doing? You get a greater understanding of the world around you. You get an under, a greater understanding of reality, and therefore, maybe where your passions might intersect with something that might be asked of you, or something that you might feel called to do, something uh, where you might contribute, play a part. And all these things come together to start playing, to, to play a picture, uh, paint a picture. There's lots of different steps along the way to understanding what you want to be when you grow up. I'll give you a few examples. My kids right now, um, I have four, so we won't talk about the 11-week-old, but we will talk about the, the almost three, almost five, and almost eight-year-old. They all have different ideas of what they want to be. And so let me run down a few of them for you. Gideon, my son, who's three this week, uh, he only really at, at his level right now sees immediately what's in front of him and what he likes, right? And that's what he wants to be. And right now he likes robots. Everything is robots. So when I'm saying goodnight to him and we're snuggling, um, you know, how does a robot go to sleep? He gets turned off. And that's, that's how robots go to sleep when we play. And he turns me off and I collapse on top of him and he's laughing and he's got to turn me back on to get off. Gideon wants to be a robot because that's where he is in his understanding. My, old, my youngest daughter, Laurel May, she's almost five. She's starting to get a little more of a picture of the world. And so she wants to be things, but she just wants to be really, really cool, fantastical things. She's into imagining herself with superpowers and other people with superpowers. So we're driving in the car um, this week and... Maymay, as we call her, starts telling everybody in the family what superpower they have. 
And a lot of them today, on this particular day had to do with uh, natural phenomenon. So Jess, my wife, has like stormy rain power. And Amelia has uh, lightning thunder power. And I'm driving and she gets to me and she goes, Daddy, you have kissy boy power. <laughs> and as my wife sank deeper and deeper into blushing into the seat next to me, I looked in the rearview mirror and I said, you have no idea. <laughs> Kissy boy power. It's the title of today's sermon. I'm kidding. But that's where Laurel May is in her understanding of what she wants to be. Now, now our oldest daughter, Amelia, she's going into second grade. So she's got a little more developed understanding. And if you ask her what she wants to be, she'll tell you, oh, I want to be a dancer. And a doctor. And an artist. And an animal doctor. And a mom. And I just go, do it, girl. It's great. And imagine then if we asked a middle schooler. And imagine then if we asked a high schooler. And imagine then if we asked a college student what they want to be when they grow up. And, and you would see this increasing understanding, this increasing maturity that develops along with our understanding of who we are, what's the reality around us. And I say that because I want to talk a little bit about that as a church today. We've been continuing in our series, Eagerly Desired, God's Gifts, God's Design, God's People. And we've been seeing a little bit, we've been gaining a little bit of a picture of understanding of who we are as God's people, who we are as what we would call the body of Christ, what the Bible would call the body of Christ. And we've seen something of how God has designed us, and we've seen that revealed simply through his word. We haven't inferred anything, we haven't made up anything, we've simply been looking at what the Bible says about who we are. And Steve Sudworth, who he and his family are enjoying two very well-deserved weeks of vacation. So just for the recording, say hi to Steve. Hi, Steve. Hi. Right. There you go, Steve. He has laid over the last month an incredible four weeks of foundation of biblical truths and doctrine for us around this idea of how God has designed us specifically. And I want to recap some of that actually for most of this sermon. And I want to do that intentionally so that we can have a full picture of the way God has designed us, because I believe if we have that, then actually our response to that really isn't all that earth-shattering, if we can get the picture of how God's designed us. Does that make sense? Yeah, so we're going to spend most of the time recapping that. So if you've been here for all four weeks, my apologies. If you missed all four, you're welcome, because you're going to get all four. But just to say, if you want to catch up on any sermons, this is not a shameless podcast plug. This is a resource. You can go to churchinthecity.us slash listen, you can also subscribe on iTunes and everything's there. That's resources of things that you may have missed, things that we've taught. So in the first week of our series, Eagerly Desired, we talked about God's design of us as the spirit-empowered believer, living the spirit-empowered life. And we discovered that God actually designed us as a people to receive his Holy Spirit. And he designed us to receive the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, is fully God, it's not, a, it's not an impartation of God that's a force or inanimate or whatever. The Holy Spirit is fully God. And God has designed us to receive the Holy Spirit in two very key ways. Firstly, as a deposit and a guarantee of our salvation. That is, the Holy Spirit is God's seal of ownership 
on us that we belong to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 says, He set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. God's designed us to receive the Holy Spirit as a seal of, of, of his promises, of his salvation. Secondly, God designed us to receive the Holy Spirit as a baptism, as a receiving by outpouring that brings with him the abiding and miraculous power of God because the Holy Spirit is God. Jesus, in the first chapter of Acts, is speaking to believers when he says, he's speaking to people who already have placed their faith in him, already have the seal of the Holy Spirit on their hearts, a promise of God's salvation. He says to them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And likewise, Paul, later in Acts, in chapter 19, as he comes, uh, he's traveling through Asia and he comes across two disciples of Jesus. And he says to them, have you received the Holy Spirit? What an odd question. No, it's not odd. Because while they're sealed with the Holy Spirit and their salvation is secure, he's asking them, have you received God's outpouring? of his Holy Spirit upon you. And they say, no, we haven't. He lays hands on them. They receive God's Holy Spirit and they begin to manifest the the gifts of the Spirit right there in that moment in God's presence. So in light of God's design for pouring out his Holy Spirit, both for our salvation and for our baptism, our immersion, our receiving by outpouring, we, we came to the conclusion that we can't hope to see a dying world come alive through a lifeless, powerless gospel of our own interpretation or preference. We can't hope to see a dying world come alive through a lifeless, powerless gospel of our own interpretation or preference. God intends for believers to live not only like we're saved, but he intends for us to live in the reality that we are empowered by his outpoured presence. You guys okay? Not just like we're saved. In the reality of his outpoured presence. And then in the weeks that followed, we began exploring some of the ways in which God has equipped his church to grow and minister in this outpoured power. And we discovered that in the New Testament, we actually see gifts that God has given to his people. Gifts from God the Father, gifts from God the Son, and gifts from God the Holy Spirit. And isn't it wonderful? I just love right off the top because when you start talking about God's gifts and gifts of the Spirit and supernatural gifts, the room divides, everybody gets itchy, all of you are not making eye contact with me right now, and we just, you know, Drew is, Drew's making eye contact with me. But isn't it wonderful that that God says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. That God actually doesn't want us to be floundering around on the topic of how he's gifted us. It's actually not his desire. It's his desire that we would be sure. It's his desire that we would know and have an an understanding of how he's designed us. He continues in 1 Corinthians 12 and says, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. God's desire for for us is not dissension and distraction when we talk about how he's gifted us. It's understanding. Rather, we should remember that God actually designed these gifts. Do you realize that? God actually thought up and designed the gift of encouragement. God actually thought up and designed the gift of having a word of knowledge for someone. 
or, or miraculous powers or healing. It wasn't us who were, who were sitting around one day going, man, there's a lot of problems, and wouldn't it be cool if there was a God who could maybe think up some things that we have in mind? It's not how it goes. God designed these gifts, and we see him giving them intentionally. And in light of what we discovered in week one, the spirit-empowered believer, we moved to week two in our series, Eagerly Desired, and we started exploring the reality of gifts from God the Father. And we've, uh, these often are referred to grace gifts. And that's because in Romans 12, verse 6, uh, Paul writes, we have different gifts according to the grace that has been given to each of us. First Peter, Peter continues in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 10. Each one of us should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its varying forms. Isn't that, isn't that interesting and wonderful at the same time? That when we're outworking our gifts for the benefit of others and pouring ourselves out, we are actually literally ministering God's grace to one another. That God actually designed his grace to be administered to one another. You administer God's grace to me. I administer God's grace to you. Wow. I love that. And those various grace gifts, gifts from the Father, are listed throughout. Romans 12, 1 Peter 4, some at the end of 1 Corinthians 12. You can go back and read those. I won't go into all of them now. But, for example, administration, service, encouragement, giving, teaching, all these gifts. And the, the list that, God, that Paul, uh, the examples that Paul gives in those chapters, we, we said they're not exhaustive. They're illustrative because God the Father is pouring out what is needed in a moment to administer his grace within his people. And we came to this definition of grace gifts, gifts from the Father. Grace gifts are gifts given by God the Father as a means of demonstrating his goodness and his grace through supernatural yet practical abilities. And so everyone is uniquely gifted in this. So Steve and Michelle, when you guys encourage, you are practically administering the grace of God. Ow, the grace of God to me when you do that. Great, and you serve so amazingly. You practically administer the grace of God to me when you do that. Everyone's uniquely gifted, and the arena within which these gifts flourish is the body of Christ. And they always, always, always point to glorifying Jesus. Grace gifts, gifts from the Father. When we do these, we release, his, we release God's grace to others, and we're recharged and built up ourselves. Why? Because God has specifically gifted you to administer grace in this way, and it recharges you. It builds you up as it builds others up. In week three, we started discovering the gifts of, of God the Son, the gifts from Jesus. And we've referred to these, as they often are, as the ministry gifts. You guys okay? All right. I know those fans get going behind you and just a little, little word. Yeah, I know, Leanne. That's great. Ministry gifts, gifts from the Son, from Jesus. And we define ministry gifts as skilled servants and leaders whose specific function is to equip and prepare the church for Jesus Christ's return. Skilled servants and leaders whose specific function is to equip the church for Jesus Christ's return. And remember, we put this in the context of a heavenly marriage, of a, of a, of a Jewish understanding of a marriage where the bridegroom who is engaged to the bride-to-be the bridegroom would actually go away and begin preparing the home, begin preparing the dwelling place where he and his bride would be. And that is not done until the father of the bride says everything is right. 
And so as that bridegroom goes and prepares his place, the bride begins to beautify herself more and more and more in eager anticipation of the moment when her bridegroom will return. She doesn't know when that is. So therefore, every moment is spent beautifying herself in anticipation of that joyous moment when her bride comes and she's taken away to be with him in the place that he's prepared. And that bridegroom would send gifts back to his bride for two very specific reasons. One, to say, I'm apart from you, but actually I'm with you. I love you. I'm sending these to you. I remember you. Remember me. I'm preparing a place for us. But those gifts would also be very specifically to bless the bride and beautify her all the more. Make her even more beautiful. Make her even more complete. And so Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, has gone to prepare a place for us as he's ascended into heaven. And we, the church, his bride, are eagerly anticipating his return. Personally, I am. Anybody? I can't wait. I cannot wait for the return of Jesus. And he will return to take his bride. And while he is away, what makes the bride more beautiful and more complete? What does the bridegroom send uh, to make us more beautiful and complete? Well, we have to ask the question, what is beauty in the eyes of Jesus? And the Bible, in the New Testament, we see very clearly, Jesus considers his bride beautiful when she is mature and unified. Maturity and unity. And to that end, Jesus Christ gave, his, gave gifts to the bride, the church, to build her up in those two things, maturity and unity. Read with me in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, where Paul describes this uh, very clearly. It was he, Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. A bride made beautiful and complete until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, skilled servants given by the Son of God for the express purpose of equipping the body of Christ, ending up in unity and maturity. And maturity, we discovered, is knowing Jesus and just trusting him more completely, more and more completely. The spirit-empowered believer, designed by God to receive the Holy Spirit both for salvation and as an expressed outpouring, gifts from the Father, grace gifts given to each one of us uniquely, everyone, We administer God's grace to one another. Gifts from the Son, ministry gifts intended to build up and equip the body of Christ for maturity and unity as the bride of Jesus. And then last week, gifts from the Holy Spirit. Eye contact, right here. Don't itch. Gifts from the Holy Spirit, often referred to as the manifestation gifts. Eye contact, right here, come on. We defined gifts from the Holy Spirit, the manifestation gifts, as displays of God's power given by the Holy Spirit to make his nature and his will known. Just to make God's nature and his will known. And we asked two very important questions. Firstly, we asked the question, are the manifestation gifts, gifts from the Holy Spirit, available still for today? And 1 Corinthians 12 verse 7 
speaks to us now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And we studied very intensely First uh, Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14, and we're not going to do all of that again now, but we came to the conclusion that we see no biblical evidence that God has ever ceased the validity of this verse. Just no biblical evidence that God has ever ceased the validity of this verse, that the Holy Spirit still, in fact, gives manifestation gifts for the common good. The gifts such as words of knowledge, prophecy, tongues, interpretation of tongues, and the others listed in in 1 Corinthians 12, and that we don't need to get itchy about them. And then we ask the question, are the manifestation gifts available for all of us? Or do some people walk around owning one of the gifts while I don't have it? You do, I don't, or I do, you don't. And for, you know, for our benefit, Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 12, all these gifts, that is, are the work of the same Spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines. And we, we learn that when the Holy Spirit intends a restoration or a blessing of some sort, for example, healing someone, he gives the gift, the gift of healing, to someone in the body to give to the receiver of that gift who is in need, healing, as he sees fit. And we saw last week where Steve had a gift for Courtney Coleman. And he called Jamie Sue up. And and he came up and gave Jamie Sue the gift. And then Jamie Sue walked and delivered it to Courtney. The gift is for Courtney. But Steve gave it to Jamie in the moment to walk over and deliver to Courtney. And the Holy Spirit does the same thing for us today. I do not own the gift of healing. But I tell you what, if you're sick, I'm going to pray for you. And I'm going to trust that the Spirit is going to pour out and manifest the gift of healing in me to heal you. That gift is for you in that moment. Does that make sense? It's God's design that these gifts are not owned by us. I don't have a business card that says, James, gift of healing. (laughs) No. Rather, they're poured out for the benefit of others. They're poured out for the benefit of others. So the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is pouring out his good, designed, God thought him up, gifts, onto his church, the body of Christ. Now, speaking of the body of Christ, as much as these chapters that we've been reading have taught us about the gifts that God has poured out on the body of Christ, it actually talks about that very body of Jesus, that body of Christ as much. And here's what I mean by that. We can sum up the definition of the body of Christ, I think, with a word. And that word is one. One. Romans 12, verses 4 through 6. For just as each of us have one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Not only do we administer God's grace to one another, we belong to one another. Kyle, I belong to you. Congratulations. You belong to me. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. 1 Corinthians 12, again, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, no matter how opposite. And we were all given one spirit to drink, and even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So follow me here. God has designed his body to be one. 
God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, God has given gifts unto that body. And I want to remind us of one more thing before before we come in for a landing. I want to remind us of one more thing that God has designed. Not just his body, not just the gifts, but God has designed a very specific partnership for us with him. I mean, he has to, right? He created a body, he's gifted us. There has to be a partnership there that God has designed. He's designed a partnership for us with him according to his desires and according to his commands. And what does God desire and command? I want to give you just just a few things that come to mind right away. We're not going to empty out the Bible of everything that God desires and commands. You're welcome. We'd be here a long time. But I want, to, I want to highlight four. God desires, firstly, his glory to be made known. God desires his glory to be made known. Just as an example, Malachi chapter 1, verse 11. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be made great among the nations. Why is God's name great among the nations? Because it will be made great among the nations. I love God's reasoning. And now you can say you read some of Malachi today. What else does God desire? God desires his commands to be followed. God desires his commands to be followed. Matthew 22, verse 37 through 40. Most of you probably know a lot of what I'm reading very well. Someone asked Jesus, what is the greatest command? And Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And can't you hear everybody saying, great, thanks. And he says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, all the prophets, hang on these two commandments. You want to keep the law of God. You want to keep the written, perfect, holy law of God. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. God desires his commands to be followed. God desires the lost to be saved. Come on. God desires the lost to be saved. Jesus said it. He couldn't have said it any clearer in Luke 19. For the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. Not just save them, but seek them. Isn't that awesome? Seek and save them. God desires the lost to be saved. And God desires his people to share in his work. God desires his people to share in his work. Another familiar passage of Scripture. Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them, his disciples, and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you to the very end of the age. You can't get a clearer invitation for partnership than that. All authority, I have it, therefore do this, and I'm with you. All right. Makes sense. So here's the question. Why did I basically spend (laughs) an entire sermon preaching what we've already preached? Because it was easier on my prep? That's half the reason. I'm kidding. (laughs) Here's why. Like the child who is asking the question what she wants to be when she grows up. And she gains an understanding of how she's been designed. And she gains an understanding of how she's gifted, what her passions are, what's quote-unquote at her disposal. And she begins to gain an understanding of the world, the reality around her, and maybe gets a picture of uh, how she might have a part to play. 
A picture rises in her heart of what it means to be all grown up and how she might act accordingly. And I'm asking the question today, what does the church that's all grown up look like? Not the church that's all grown ups, but the church that's all grown up look like. How does it act? When we get the picture of how God has designed us, one body. When we get the picture of the gifts that God has given to us at our disposal, designed and given to us, the gifts from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When we understand the invitation that God extends to us to partner with Him in everything that He commands and desires, I want to submit to you that the grown-up church, the mature church, can have but one simple biblical fitting response to that, and that is the response of faith. That is the response of faith. And I'm not talking about a wishy-washy, cutesy, Hallmark card faith. Please know. That's not what I'm saying. Hebrews 11 reminds us that faith is the confidence of what we hope for. Faith is not hope. Faith is not, gosh, I hope. Sorry, it's not. Faith is the confidence in what we hope for. It is the assurance of what we do not see. Those Greek words for confidence and assurance mean confidence and assurance. The internet does not lie. In light of God's design of the body of Christ, in light of God's design of his good gifts, in light of God's call for us to partner with him, I want to elaborate on the definition of faith. I'm not adding the scripture. I just want to extrapolate on it a little bit. And I want to say that faith is the humble expectation that God will do what he's more than able to do according to his character, his commands, and his purposes. The humble expectation that God will do what he's more than able to do according to his character, his commands, and his purposes. So in light of that, the church that's all grown up sees what God has designed itself, the gifts, what God calls us to partner with him in, and expects with faith that God will display his power. That that church has faith that the sick will be healed. That, That church has faith that the lost will be saved. That church has faith to see the miraculous, impossible things come to pass. Because we didn't think it up. I didn't think that up. I have faith to see relationships restored. Have faith to see people delivered from what oppresses them. I have faith that God speaks prophetically. It's not our idea. It's our amen. God designed every last little inch of this and our role is to say amen do it lord what what can what can our response be but faith second corinthians 120 chris preached on this a little earlier in the year for no matter how many promises god has made they are yes in christ and so through him the amen the faith the expectation the yes lord do it lord is spoken by us to the glory of God. Faith is not a concept. It's not a nebulous thing. It's not an impossible mountain. It's not some warm, fuzzy, mysterious key to the universe. It's not a post on a social media site. It is the natural, fitting, believing response of an all-grown-up church to what God has designed. It's our only response. So why is it impossible to please God without faith, as Hebrews eleven six 6 says? Because God designed everything for our response to be faith. 
For me to not have faith means I'm taking on some of the design and accomplishment of something. And God didn't design it that way. Suddenly it's so much more meaningful now when Jesus in John 14 says, whoever believes in me will do the works that I've been doing and he'll do greater things than these. Because I'm going away to the Father. Boy, without faith or without an understanding of how God has designed us and the gifts that he's poured out, I read that verse and I go, what are you talking about, Jesus? Listen to yourself. Jesus, easy. No. God has designed it for our response to be faith. We're nearly finished, I promise you. The fitting response of a grown-up, mature church is undiluted faith in Jesus Christ because of what God has designed and because of who he is. Two things. I want to I just say two things to this question of, then what do we stand in faith for? And I know we stand in faith for a lot. And again, I'm not going to empty the Bible out of all those things. You're welcome. But I think in light of what we've been studying in the last five weeks as a church family, this, this idea of God's gifts, God's design, God's people. I want to invite us to stand in faith for two very specific things. We stand in faith and we expect God's glory to be shown in the way he has designed his gifts for us. We expect God's glory to be shown in the way he has designed his gifts for us. Do you seek to serve and benefit others in the ways that you've been gifted? That's an act of faith. If you don't, can I humbly encourage you, step out in faith and seek to serve and benefit others. Do you come to those who watch over you, your elders, and ask for perspective and get counsel on perspective on on how God has gifted you and how that can be worked out? Do we expect God's miraculous power? Do we have a culture of expecting God to move miraculously, expecting God to move in what is impossible for us? Do we expect displays of his glory when we stand in those ways? Secondly, we expect to share the gospel in power and that salvation will accompany God revealing himself. We expect to share the gospel in power and that salvation will accompany God revealing himself. I want to make something very, very clear. The gifts and how we outwork them are not the power for salvation. Displays of splendor and wonder, they're not the power for salvation. Even our own faith is not the power for salvation. Paul makes very clear in Romans chapter 1. There is only one thing that is the power for salvation. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Displays of God's splendor are invitations for the unbeliever to recognize the truth of Jesus Christ. Invitations for the unbeliever to recognize the truth of Jesus Christ. And the gospel, if I can be so bold to say, is not inferred by God displaying his power. It is shared by the people of God who know it. Do we share it? In Acts 3, when Peter and John are at the temple and they heal the lame man who's asking for money, and Peter says, I I, I don't have money, but in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And just recently at Pentecost, when, when God poured out his spirit, Peter does the same thing in each. He takes the moment of everyone's awe and he shares the gospel. It's awkward to share the gospel. Come on. Everyone in here is breathing the same air. It's awkward to share the gospel sometimes. You know what's amazing? 
that when God displays his power and breaks through in an undeniable way, then we can share the gospel. And we give people a true chance to recognize who God is, just as Peter did in Acts 2 and 3. The all-grown-up church takes God at his word. And to be honest, expecting in faith can be that only fitting response. That's my prayer for us. I'm going to turn it over to Mark in just a minute. But I want to just, I want to just pray a couple of things for us. First of all, if you've never, if you're, if you're hearing this and you say, well, I've never placed faith, quote-unquote, in Jesus Christ. I've, I've never believed that he is the Son of God. Can I just say today is that day? Today is the day. There is no way for us to know God. There is no way for us to be holy. There is no way for us to spend eternity with him outside of placing our faith, our belief, and submitting our life to the person, Jesus Christ, whom God raised from the dead after he purchased our freedom by dying on the cross. Maybe there's a little bit of a repentance in your heart from maybe having not walked in faith. For some of us, I tell you what, as I was preparing this week, I was smacked in the face by some repentance about how I have not walked in faith as a fitting response. Maybe some of you are saying, I I need to recognize and, and maybe even ask the question a little more of what it means for me to live out my gifts in faith. Administering God's grace, asking the Holy Spirit to say, and saying, let me deliver your gift to, to, to the benefit of others. Maybe some of you are saying, I, I love to share the gospel, but I just, I, lack, I freeze up, I lack the faith to do it. What a prayer to pray for God to increase faith and display his power. Can I just pray that for us individually and corporately? If you, if you want to stand or receive that, uh, not meaning to crash land, but I just, if you want to stand, can I just pray that uh, for, for anyone who wants to stand and receive that? Uh, anyone want to stand, just receive, uh, or just, just, Receive prayer for a greater impartation of faith. Yes, Lord, we just, God, I just thank you for the clarity found in your word. I thank you, Lord, that faith is not, um, it's not a hunt, it's not a chase. It's just a fitting response to who you are and how you've made us and how you've designed what you poured out on us. And I want to pray in Jesus' name for the family of church in the city. Lord, people who are standing individually right now, families, for us corporately, Lord, I just pray that our response would be faith. That our response would be to expect of you what you are more than able to do. Would you let that kind of faith rise in us? Would you let that kind of faith be a daily reality in our hearts? And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for the amazing work that you're doing amongst us, individually and in this church and in this city. And I just pray for that to continue from this church family in the name of Jesus because we step out in faith in how you have designed what you pour out onto us in your gifts. And we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.